0: Hello, my name is Jonathan Weiner, and welcome to this episode of Headroom. Headroom is a place where I'll bring in guests to explore various topics, including audio technology innovation and music production. And today, I'm joined by Jonathan Bailey. John is the CTO at Isotope in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he currently leads the R and D and product management team at Isotope, helping them envision future product development. And choosing technologies to use in the development of the products. Let's talk about technology within the context of your work as CTO at Isotope. Yeah. Um, machine learning. Why machine learning? What kind of opportunities uh, does it represent in your mind in the work that is being done at Isotope? And, um, and in, in general, like, was it a choice? To go specifically for machine learning technology versus some other technology.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, so our, our good friend Mark Ethier, who's the co-founder and CEO of Isotope, and my boss, um, would would tell you that sort of maybe not machine learning per se, but the sort of broad field of AI has been present at Isotope since its very inception. It's been his his personal background, uh, when he was an undergrad student at MIT, he had a focus on AI. And so I think as a company, I think we've always been interested in keeping kind of a, a a pulse on the leading edge of what's happening in the world of technology and technology research and exploring the applicability of those advancements to what we do in music and audio production. And so, of course, if we look at kind of a history, the last kind of 10 years in particular, but the last 20, 30, 40 years, sort of more broadly, techniques around AI have become uh, more advanced, more powerful, more relevant, and and so that's something that we've kind of always done to a degree, I think. this the, 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 Our interest in machine learning really started to, machine learning specifically, really started to... Take root probably about five or six years ago through a confluence of a couple of factors. One is we had uh, Isotope acquired a company in 2012 that was really an audio technology research company called uh, Imagine Research, and they were they had some kind of early product concepts and had built some sort of ex- I'll call them experiments or or prototypes that were um, touching on a, a, a variety of different um, sort of research avenues related to. AI-powered music technology. So there was kind of a seed that was planted there. In the world, a few things happened simultaneously. One is through the advent in particular of social media, um, just people started sharing just tremendous amounts of content. And so um, uh, companies like Facebook or Google had access to a lot of data um, that they could start to utilize as part of their own technology research, research initiatives. Second thing is the advent of cloud computing. It became very cheap to deploy large clusters of computers that were sort of analyzing or, or crunching on those data sets, right? And so that led to a couple of key advancements. And I will point to one, which is the, the sort of breakthroughs around facial recognition. Facial recognition was a little bit of this holy grail problem in image processing that people had been working on for years and years and years. And the sort of old, old techniques that come from sort of statistical and numerical analysis really weren't giving much headway. But, um, you know, uh, some researchers started to dust off some old techniques that had really been kind of discarded uh, or, or, or found to be overly limited a, a few decades ago that made use of neural networks. But the now availability of large, large amounts of training data, the... Um, uh, the availability of very powerful computers that could crunch on that at scale allowed us, allowed, allowed those researchers as a community to be able to sort of break through and start to solve that problem. And, and that sort of led to this increased interest and investment in, in neural networks and in particularly, you know, the use of large data sets and large compute clusters, which we call deep learning. Uh, t- to to see what else we could do with that, basically, that was something that you know m- our research team at Isotope was was pretty keenly aware of these advancements just just by again keeping a bead on what's happening in technology and wondered, cool, could we apply that to what we do? And I'd say maybe the, one of the dirty little secrets of Isotope over the past twenty years is that a lot of what we do is building on advancements in image processing specifically or image analysis and image processing Sometimes it's easier in the world of image processing because of you know they're dealing with like a, f- a fixed data asset you know picture as opposed to a stream of audio that can be changing over time. Sometimes it's way harder in image processing, so it's easier for us to adapt their techniques to what we're doing. But um, there tends to be more investment and more attention on images, as I think you, <laughs> you surely know, yeah. uh, than there is on on audio content. And so we can sort of piggyback on on some of those research initiatives. So that's what we've done. Um, and what we found is that in a similar in, in a similar vein to, to the breakthrough that occurred with neural networks in terms of starting to um, be able to solve the problem of facial recognition, like be able to, you know, uh, think about the photo album on your iPhone, right? Uh, you know, the, there's, a, there's an algorithm that can sort, you know, the people in your library into different buckets, so it can cluster them, right? This is, these are all photos of person A, these are all photos of person B even be able to distinguish between a picture of a, a human's face and a car or something like that. That's another algorithm. So, you know, we wondered if we could do the similar kinds of things. Like if we have a stream of audio, could we separate, you know, um, instruments by type, right? Can we group together all the things that sound like drums and all the things that sound like guitars and all the things that sound like voices and low and behold, we could. And you know, that led, it kind of led from there.
0: You've kind of described the what of it. Yeah. So, maybe now to report on the state of where it is. We were talking earlier and you were describing kind of this journey, if yep. you will, um, in terms of d- uh, discovering kind of what the applications are um, and maybe discovery is is actually exactly the right word, sort of figuring out what you can do with this technology.
1: The way I think about it is that we're, and I think this is broadly true of just the machine learning community in general, but especially at Isaac Soap, we're, we're on this kind of maturity curve that we're ascending. And so the the first thing we were able to do with machine learning was analysis or identification. So essentially, we could take a piece of content, piece of audio, and then put a label on it, um, give it some descriptor, right? So the first real commercial realization of this research happened in, I think it was 2016, when we launched the first version of our uh, channel strip or or sort of mixing focus plugin, which is called Neutron. Uh, we th- that product has a feature in it called Track Assistant, and the way it works is you put the plug in on your track, you can stream some audio through it. We listen in the background, and essentially what we're doing is collecting that audio and trying to classify that into one of several instrument types. So is this drums? Is this Voice, is this bass, guitar, piano? So that's an analysis exercise, right? We're we're taking audio in and we're sort of outputting a label. And then once we have that label, we can do other things with it. We can recommend a preset, for example, sort of based on good mixing principles or good production principles. And that's essentially how the track assistant works. From there, you know, the next thing we wanted to see if we could crack (laughs) it was processing. So you know, we start with content analysis. Can we can we modify the content? Can we enhance the content in some way? And so the next set of experiments that we um, we ran yielded in two features for our audio editor repair restoration product RX, and they were called de-russell and dialogue isolate. And so we kind of built on that original technique of of taking audio in and applying a label to it, but in this case, we're looking. Um, we're basically, we're looking at the spectro- spectrogram and we're trying to figure out if, if some area of the spectrogram is dialogue or something else that we don't want, basically. And so we label the spectrogram accordingly as we go through the audio stream. Once we have the spectrogram labeled, we can use a technique called spectral masking to essentially subtract out the stuff we don't want from that signal. So now we're, you know, we've kind of gone, we started from analysis, now we're in the realm of processing. We're using a neural network to actually enhance the, the audio. The, the sort of state of the art right now for both Isotope and from the community at large um, is synthesis or, or audio generation. We haven't released anything commercially yet in that regard, but it's something that we're very interested in. You can I can point to examples by other companies that are pretty compelling. The Magenta team out of Google and just Google more generally has some pretty um, has made some pretty astounding progress in a couple of realms. They have a text to speech algorithm called Tacotron, which is incredibly lifelike. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard these, but um, they have some examples. One of the sort of key prototypes they had. This is a couple of years old now, I think. Was um, was a reservation system, so you could call and speak to speak to someone in order to make, like, you know, book a table for dinner. Remember when we used to be able to do that. <laughs> um, but the, the um, so there was enough uh, kind of natural language understanding from this service that you're speaking to. So this is all artificial, right? Um, but the, the the quality of speech that uh, they generated is just incredibly lifelike. And there are little nuances and little inflections that sort of might sound, uh, you know, a little, a little strange if away. you pay close attention. But it's pretty, it's pretty... Um, compelling. And so, and in the world of image processing, there's there's lots of examples. Um, but, you know, sort of the more to sort of track it to how I was describing the world earlier. So, if we started an analysis with we take audio content in and we produce a label, here we're almost reversing that process. So, we want to take a label in and produce audio content, right? So, say, you know, make me a big, boomy, roomy sounding drum sound. And then the, you know, neural net would be able to produce something that sounds like that.
0: Uh huh. When you talk about this as being generative, um, I guess I want to maybe explore the the difference between the idea of something being generative and something being truly creative. And maybe right. this is where the difference between this sort of phrase AI and, yep. and machine learning um, kind of comes into play. Right. Um, so, you know, what what's your take on that? What's your position about... You know we're doing we're doing a lot of classification we're doing a lot of identification yep. we're, we're modeling yep. a lot based on the this you know the semantic labels at what point do we either bump up against the limitations of this technology or is there sort of an uh, what's coming next aspect to this
1: yeah it's a great question it's 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 one that I get not infrequently and my my honest answer, I, I guess, kind of concerns a little bit of intent, right? I guess you have to trust me a little bit when I say what I'm about to say, which is, at the end of the day, Isotope is not in the business of automating creativity. That's not our goal as a company. The reason we exist is to inspire and enable creative people. And so we're, we're motivated. We want to give those people the best, most powerful tools that we can to unlock that creativity. Now, there is a thing that happens, so if you look at the sort of recent you know, portfolio of technologies that Isotope has related, uh, undoubtedly and unambiguously, sort of assistive technologies, helping people who might not have the skills to do something to be able to do that thing is a focus for us. And we're kind of unapologetic about that. You know, when photography was invented in the late 1800s, that was meant to be the death of painting, right? like painting didn't need to exist anymore because its primary purpose was to sort of render a moment in time, a a moment in space. Um, And photography was able to do that much more easily and much more cheaply, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the effect that had, it, it certainly did not slow down painting in the 20th century that gave us Picasso and Matisse and Robert Rauschenberg and Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein and so on and so forth, all the way up to, you know, some of my favorite painters today, Wade Guy and Amy Selman, there's still a lot of amazing painting happening. But what it did do is it, it kind of freed painting to become something else. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I hope we can create. If I've learned one thing, it's that it's the sort of humility that comes with making tools and putting them in the hands of creative people. They will always use them in ways that we can't imagine. And I do, I do have faith, I guess, in the potential for creative people to I guess kind of like raise the bar or do something new or take the technology. At the end of the day, the technology, at least the way we think about it, it it doesn't mean anything if it's not in the hand of someone truly creative. Yeah. So you know, I, but it's a good question. I don't know. That's I should well, what, say that.
0: Yeah. Right. Well what I'm hearing <laughs> which I um, which I appreciate and I think everybody can sort of get behind, at least in one aspect is that, you know, people, artists are part of their job is to be the arbiter of their, their work and their own impetus, right? right? It's not to, to sort of offload that to a machine. So I think that's a given. Um, and I, and I think that, um, and we're all happier because of it. I think the thing that I want to get at, and this is sort of a conversation I've been wanting to have with you for a little while now is, um, maybe to put a finer point on this, is to think about the difference between the words style and genre in the context huh. of this conversation so right. um my and I'm, I'm maybe leading the witness a little bit here but you know my um my understanding is that it's pretty easy to describe thing, um, works of art in terms of their style their particular attributes whether it's a visual media or audio and, you know, we could use adjectives, we can describe waveforms, and we can describe, you know, the difference between peak and average level. We can just, des- you know, all of those things. Right. Tempo. Sure. Yeah. Um, genre. Kind of quantitative measures. Yeah. And, and, there, and the quantitative measures actually may, you know, like a waltz, there's a, a, an easy quantitative measure to apply there. It's going to be some variant of 3-4, right? So, right. Um, so there's, there are ways of assigning these quantitative measures to genre, but is there a way to tease out the part of genre that contains intention and, and begin to tease that out using this, you know, using neural networks, using this technology? Is that something I, and you know, maybe it's not even a good idea based on what you were saying a little while ago. I'm not sure, but I wanted to throw that out and, and put your brain on it for a minute.
1: So a couple things to, to sort of unpack in that question. One is um, I think about style on an individual basis where it's genre, I think is a sort of socially like we define genre as a community, not as an individual person, um, not as, or not in terms of individual works. Right. And those definitions do change over time. So that is both our social contra- constructs, but one is maybe a bit more of an individual construct and the other one is a bit more of a community-oriented construct. As an aside, there was an interesting uh, debate or chat happening, I don't know if you saw it in our internal uh, chat channel at iZotope, uh, around the difference, I think it was the difference between techno and house. And there was someone who uh, did a paper for a recent conference, I, I, I think it may have been Izmir, Essentially, trying to write a an, like a neural network to be able to differentiate between house and techno, and the alg- they couldn't come up with a difference, and so it led to a spirited debate amongst the you know sort of electronic music nerds at the company on what what was the difference. So that's just kind of interesting. Yes. The algorithm failed to find objective measures to be able to differentiate between the two, and I hope I have the two genres right. I think I do. Um, so that's just kind of interesting, but. You know, for style. So, so the, you know, another thing we're interested in in isotope. I'm going to digress a little here, bit here on style. And if, honestly, if I'm being very honest, this is this is a personal holy grail for me is the concept of style transfer when I was a music production student at Berkeley, I just wanted my stuff to sound like my favorite bands, basically. <laughs> I wanted it to have enough of me in it that it was mine, right? That I had some degree of authorship, but really I would have loved to have like hit the copy button from a Radiohead production or flying Lotus production or whatever to like get me over the hump to kind of get me going. So c- cut to four or five years ago, this concept of style transfer, um, uh, came out of image research and image processing, and so if you're not familiar with it, there's some cool. Um, I recommend googling for for the listeners. There's some cool early experiments that came out of this. So, you know, what what if you, imagine you take a photograph, and what if that photograph was rendered in the style of Van Gogh or Monet, or you know, think of a painter who has a very kind of strong stylistic personality. So that to me seemed like a pretty direct analogy to the problem, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago that I was interested in solving in music school. And it's definitely something we've explored and are interested in at Isotope. and candidly something that we also hear from our customers. We hear them say, oh, I'd like to, you know, use this reference or use this match to help me kind of be more creative, or accelerate sort of my own creative learning curve. So that's so that's interesting. So we're exploring that. We've 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 sort of released, productized that concept in a couple, a couple of different places. The most recent example of that is maybe sort of more. Um, I guess I want to use the word utilitarian on on sort of more of the post side of our business, so the audio for film and television, in a product called Dialogue Match, where we're essentially looking to match a, a, a reverb. Uh, an algorithmic reverb setting against some source signal right so like what's what's the reverb that we can create that sounds the most like this reference that we can refer to but we're exploring other applications of that but where this takes me kind of tracking back to your question around style versus genre is um you know if we think of genre as maybe a distribution right you know there's there's this kind of space of of creativity and we can organize things that are similar to each other. We call these things rock and these things, you know, techno, and these things jazz. Within those st- spaces, there's still a bunch of points. But a style is only any one point in that space. What machine learning algorithms do, and I'm generalizing a little bit here, but what they tend to do is find sort of the center of those bullseyes. And they they're not so interested in the outliers here. And so this is where. Mm-hmm. It will be interesting to see what the future of machine learning holds because what, what neural networks tend to do is sort of take a world of a high dimension to kind of flatten them to,
0: mm-hmm.
1: to something that's easier to understand and digest and, and predict, et cetera, et cetera, not to emphasize the outliers. Although I think this is, again, where we're starting to butt up against um, the state of the art of neural networks. And so we're starting to see some research that would allow us to steer something more in one direction versus another based on a user input or a preference or, um, you know, a, a kind of a guide, um, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but one, of, one of the things that I think we, we need to watch out for with, with the use of this technology is that we don't flatten everything into, you know, a handful of small buckets and then kind of apply that coarse approach. Um, to everything we do. You know, we want to retain that expressiveness and that um, sort of variability and the results that we're helping our our users to create.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're pointing at one of the things that this technology was, I think, um, designed to do or is most helpful to do is things like optimize routes for UPS trucks or, you know, the, the things right. where having a single point output actually yeah. is really helpful. So do you think that there's room to incorporate you know, chaos into the model, or something that would allow the output to somehow get skewed in a way that might facilitate something different, something that doesn't drive towards that single data point that you were referring to.
1: Yeah, there's, um, you know, maybe, I wouldn't call it chaos, but what's interesting to me, and, and this is another, th- you know, sort of thread that we're, we're pursuing is, um, well, let's assume that humans to, are to an extent chaotic, and so if we learn, if we can learn any of our individual preferences, then that may achieve the solution that I think we're kind of pushing for here, which is can, can, the, can the algorithm make some adaptation based on me, whether it's an input that I directly put into it, or it's an insight that it gleans from how I work just by observing me, um, can it somehow become conditioned to me? Yeah. Um,
0: I remember early on that that was one of the first questions that we were hearing over and over again is, can the machine learn me? Right.
1: Yeah. 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 This is one of the fun parts about making cutting edge technology is uh, we, we sort of um, we were celebrated for about 15 minutes after we make it. And then after that wears off, people are like, well, does it learn from me and does it adapt in real time and does it get smarter and better? And, and, and so we're kind of like, well, you know, no. <laughs> Not yet. We're working on it. But user expectations pretty typically outstrip what we're capable of delivering uh, in any one period of time. But that's, um, you know, you're, you're, you're talking to Shahan, uh, one of our research engineers, uh, Shahan Narcesian at iZotope. Uh, and this is, a, this is a topic that he's very much interested in, is how we can steer algorithms based on either small amounts of data or individual preferences or um, things like that. And so I do, I do, I'm pretty hopeful actually about the sort of the viability of the technology to be able to support those kinds of approaches in the future because I don't think, well, particularly for creative technological pursuits, it's not going to be good enough to produce a generic result over time. You know, as the technology is young and immature and we're getting started, I think that's kind of okay. Um, but I, I expect more. Um, from the technology, and no doubt our users will expect more than that as well so so w- w- we need to figure that out
0: oh, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens and seeing if we can figure out a way to get the machines to produce something that's not necessarily so derivative from the data set if you will right yeah well that's just
1: that's why I used you know insights before um, you know it's inter- that's an interesting that's an interesting observation to make which is um, well, there's a few things that we can do there. One is an interesting thing. So so historically, in order to do anything with neural nets, the technology that we ultimately produce, it, it has to be derivative from the data. Because that's, you know, there's an algorithm, and there's data, and we condition the algorithm using the data, and then that's it. So it would be sort of dishonest to say that it's not... Um, Fair enough. We're, we're the, yeah, the insights that we're creating or the, the way the work, the way the tech works, is not derivative from the data. However, however, another thing that's interesting to explore is the use of synthetic data, right? So not real data, but what happens if we make up a bunch of data and then train an algorithm against that? Does that lead to something? Is that derivative? Then I don't know. This is now we're maybe just getting pedantic with terminology, but 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 I would still say you know there's um, using data we can still create insights that might not be obvious to the user him or herself, you know, Mm -hmm. so that, that's, that, that alone, I think can be kept powerful in the same way that, you know, as a musician, just recording yourself and just confronting the brutal fact of what you, what it is you played or sang or whatever, after the fact can lead to a creative insight. I think, you know, I wonder, I, I, I think that, you know, there, there are plenty of opportunities for machine learning to operate kind of in a similar way, just by just, just through reflecting back to you a, diff- a new or different insight on what it is that you have created or what it is you're sitting on top of in terms of your own.
0: Well, and clearly, if I may, it, it does seem to be positioned to um, to help solve problems that are increasingly present in people's work um, as, as technology allows us to record in a, the widest variety of locales that you can possibly imagine um to be able to to eliminate some of the problems or constrain the results so that we can actually make use of the recordings and and do things with them Um, that's something to go back for instance to dialogue isolate uh, that machine learning can be incredibly useful for
1: yeah absolutely yep
0: so um well this is interesting and fascinating and I, i got a little bit more about this style versus genre conversation so i'm satisfied um so is there anything else that you care to kind of put out there about? you know, what's next?
1: What's, I thought I was prepared for the hardball question that you didn't ask. So I'm going to ask it myself. Okay, but don't expect me to answer it. I'm going to, well, no, I want to, I (laughs) want to turn it around and interview the interviewer for a second. I want to get your perspective on something. And that's, you know, we've sort of, we haven't really talked directly about ethics Mm -hmm. and, and privacy and, you know this whole conversation about sort of technology and what we're trying to do and machine learning it presumes a, a level of access to data that i think um sort of society is very legitimately questioning whether companies like isotope or much larger companies like the facebook's googles of the world should have the level of access to people's individual and personal data that they have right now and I, I'm just curious, you know, on the one hand, we, we kind of need it or we need something equivalent in order to be able to pursue the research that we're doing and come up with the cool stuff and cool tech that we're doing. On the other hand, you know, I, I I get it, you know, and I'm a citizen of the world as well. And I um, I sort of recognize and respect that the, the argument that people's individual personal data is is theirs really fundamentally and they should have a degree of control over that I'm just curious what what do you think of that you know what what how should we be thinking about that
0: well I mean the the obvious answer which is a copt out is to offer an opt-in sure. um, yeah. but sure. um, you know it, it occurs to me well a couple of things. You know, when you drive down the highway and they're measuring how many people are driving down the highway, down, you know, across the Mass Pike into town on a Monday at nine versus a Monday at noon, they're getting information based on people's behavior. It's not a creative uh, output, um, hopefully, in this case. (laughs) It
1: depends on how you drive, I guess. That's
0: right. Um, But, you know, we're we're always participating in in sort of aggregated, you know, behaviors that that that. And, and to some extent, I feel the same is true of um, at least the physics of music. Um, you know, when we do the analysis that we're doing, we're not necessarily looking at the lyric content or what the, what the words are supposed to mean. But it's more, you know, what's the shape of the sound? What's the frequency content? Um, you know, is it a voice? More generally speaking. And, and for me, in the, in the way that it, it's really thinking more about, broadly speaking, about human behaviors um it i i don't find it particularly troublesome um you know i think i think when you start thinking in terms of music composition it's a different story um because uh and you know w- there there are many lawyers who are uh, fully employed dealing with um, copyright litigation um, around this very question um uh, but but as far as you know the the work that we're doing i i haven't um again i think the opt-in is important but there's nothing that's made me feel like we shouldn't be uh able to pay attention to the the shape of the thing you know it's a a component of the signal um i guess it also depends to some extent on how it's being monitored but um but that's my take on it
1: yeah it's an interesting topic Uh, this is a place you know um technology has a history of particularly I'd be interested to look at this sort of over a longer arc of time, but certainly in the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years of sort of outpacing the law, I think it always does, is really what I want to say. Well, and then there's the law, and then (laughs) there's also a difference between what's legal and what's the right thing to do, Uh (laughs) what's the moral thing to do, Right. But as much as anything, I think the law and ethics will shape the development of these technologies over the next few years. I mean, as you know, we talked about generative models or audio synthesis using machine learning. Well, that can lead to things that we're already confronting as a society, like deepfakes. You know, that's that's coming in music. It, we don't have it yet, but surely it will come. And so, how do we? How should we be thinking as a company around? the use of our tools for identity theft, things like that, you know, it's, and I I don't have the answers, honestly, but I don't know that we are um, able to sort of, I think we've been privileged to think about technology development somewhat in isolation of these sort of more societal factors. And Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that's what the future will look like for us. I think we will have a sort of responsibility as um, citizens of the world to be contending with some of this stuff too.
0: Well, I'm really glad to hear you raise it I'm glad you're thinking about it and that we're thinking about it um and I'll also add that um my feeling and and this extends to things like automation around creativity yeah. um yeah. if if you if one doesn't like it and therefore dismisses it you're at some point going to find yourself having to contend with something you haven't thought about very hard because it is coming yeah. we do know that these tools exist so we have to figure out how to right. use them and work with them yeah. and um and that's important work so Well, thank you, man. Um, I appreciate your taking this time. Um, Enjoyable, as always. Actually, I rarely get to speak to you this long, so just selfishly, I had a great time. And I hope that people who are listening have learned something from it, too. So thank you.
1: Well, it's very much my pleasure. We've been talking about doing this for a while now, so I'm glad we were able to create this space and time to do it. And I'm super excited for the new iteration of the podcast.
0: Well, then we can count on having at least one listener. Exactly. (laughs) I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Headroom. Please join me next week when I'll be joined by Terry Winston and Leah King from the Women's Audio Mission. We're going to talk about issues around equity, privilege, and how it shows up in the relationship with audio technology and music production. Headroom is a podcast produced by Isotope Incorporated, music by Smiganot. Thanks to the team. See you soon.